I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas, where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. Today, a conversation about the intersection of nationalism, whiteness, and American politics with Jeff Charlotte. His new book travels from the scenes of insurrection to the rural roads of Wisconsin's heartland to the gleaming altars of prosperous churches. And what he finds are people who hear the call of contempt and division and dissolution and eagerly step forward to respond, sometimes with violence. Jeff Charlotte, a professor at Dartmouth and a journalist, traveled across America to report on the book, and the new book is titled The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. He joins us today from New Hampshire. Jeff, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. You titled a chapter about your research trip to Wisconsin, The Great Acceleration, and I think this idea undergirds a lot of what you wrote about in the book. Many of us have this sense of forces that are spinning faster, that feel out of control. And before we talk about what you saw and what I've taken from the book, I'm just interested in what you believe is accelerating. Where's that sense come from, from your travels? I mean, I've been reporting on right-wing movements for, for about 20 years. And if you had asked me uh, 10 years ago, do you think there could ever be civil war in America? I, I probably would have scoffed at it, even as I knew then that it was far stronger than, than, than most understood. Um, and, and, and right there, the fact that um, that civil war talk um, has now become so common that we can have a serious conversation. We may say, no, it's never possible or it is, but it's on the table. Civil war is on the table very much so for the right. Um, uh, it's moved from the fringes into, you know, the halls of Congress, <laughs> former president sort of invoking these ideas. Um, and, and it's, it's getting echoes across the board. So it's just more, more fury in the speech, more guns, more simmering violence than I've seen in 20 years. And it just, it feels like it's picking up speed. What strikes me about, the way people talk about it and the way they might respond to questions about it, let's say to a, to a poll is how casual this feels and how contradictory it feels. I mean, people will, Americans will talk about their concerns about the division and how they wish the political class would work together in one breath. And then the next, a certain segment of the population will talk about this, acceptance almost that we are heading for a kind of civil war. How do you square that? I think, you know, when, when I went out to, to start traveling for the, the, the long title essay, The Undertow, um, I had seen a poll of historians talking about this possibility of civil war and the fact that we're closer. Mm-hmm. And historians are, are, I'm married to a historian. Um, historians are aware of the long, the, the big picture. Things actually tend to move more slowly. So for historians to speak of this was something. When I got out there and I, would, I quickly realized I barely had to ask the question to most of the folks I was encountering. And the question about, I would just say, civil war, and they would not as if this was reasonable. But you're right. These were the same folks who would be saying um, uh, they would be quick to tell you they used to be Democrats. Uh, more than a few of them had voted for Obama. That's part of the quickening, too, of the sort of the radicalization of, uh, of certain sections. And I think part of what happened, and we know from studying civil wars, is when both sides uh, 
and it does come down to size in a way, um, see the other as having departed all norms. So they want everyone to work together. They want things to go back to the way they were. And it's the other guys who have gone off the map and who are dangerous. So they're able to sort of contain both this idea of civil war and let's all work together. Contradictory ideas, as you say, at the same time. I'm going to come back to what you said about Obama, but um, your subtitle, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, reminds me of a conversation that I had with uh, Barbara F. Walter. And you're familiar with her work, I know, I think. Yeah, she's a UC San Diego scholar for our listeners. And she characterizes the conditions that make us ripe for what she thinks of as national civil conflict. And I, I wanted to... I wanted you to listen to a little part of her explanation from our interview. Here's one of the reasons that she thinks we are ripe for this conflict. Let's listen. America is going through this difficult transition where we're moving from a white majority country to what will become a non-white majority country. Um, that's probably going to happen around the year 2045. Mm-hmm. And what that means is the once dominant group here in the United States, whites, um, are going to lose their majority status. And if you're in a democracy where uh, you have one person, one vote, it doesn't take much to look down the road and realize that that system will no longer serve you. Jeff, how much of that sensibility permeated, you know, the attitudes of people that you were talking to as you were reporting the book? I mean, a big theme of the book is, is, is whiteness. And I think white supremacy actually permeates everything, but it's complicated uh, in, in a couple of senses. Um, uh, I think, um, and I'm actually a big, great admirer of, of Barbara Walters' book. I, I, I first read it by listening to it on, on audio book as I was driving around. Wisconsin, mm-hmm. which where, oh. incidentally, in the end of her book, she speculates that uh, a civil war could begin. Um, right. And um, but I think one of the things that I observed is if, if we might speak of the American contribution to fascism, which is old and deep. And, and I also write about the ways in which, you know, you go back to the European fascists and they were studying um, American American racial laws and segregation laws. So there's a back and forth. But this new contribution is to have a pure white nationalism that's not going to work in a country as diverse as ours. So you can have white supremacy that is served sometimes by people of color. Uh, listeners may know um, of the black far right pundit uh, Candace Owens. Mm-hmm. More interesting to me was uh, when I would go to what I came to call militia churches, which is these are sort of large churches with their own militias. They're often quite diverse, um, and everybody's buying into a concept of white supremacy, uh, if not always explicit, always present, um, but not everybody's white. And I think that's the, 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 what my uh, friend Anthea Butler, uh, author of a book called White Evangelical Racism, calls the promise of whiteness, um, which will seduce some non-white people into thinking, oh, if I join this fascist movement, um, somehow I get all the benefits and the privileges of whiteness. So so that's, that was one of the really puzzling uh, 
chapters in your book for me, experiences that you had. And I, and I guess, I think what I hear you saying about these militia churches and the fact that they are not totally white is that some people of color are um, buying into, I guess, as you say, this idea that they're, that we need authoritarianism and they will be members of that authoritarian class when this movement takes hold of the United States. It's a, it's a real misreading, isn't it, of, of how these nationalist and authoritarian and fascist movements evolve or, or come to be? I mean, it's not a misreading. I would call it more of uh, an American adaptation Although it's okay. coming at a moment, and, and the one thing that I, and I think uh, is worth thinking about when we talk about these particular American conditions that make the United States ripe for this kind of conflict, um, I, I've done a lot of reporting globally as well. Um, this is a global fascist moment, um, kind of unprecedented. Even if we go back to the 1930s, um, you have Russia, which is effectively a fascist country of China, officially a communist country, but an authoritarian country that is, all, for all practical purposes, built around a cult of personality. It's fascist. Um, and the United States struggling to hold on to some kind of democracy, right? And then many, many other sizable countries that have already, uh, have already gone over. Um, and that's what makes uh, the, the sort of, um, when we talk about the sort of the misreading of what fascism was, I think it's important mm-hmm. for us to think, and this is sort of what I'm trying to do in the book, is think of what fascism is. Fascism is always fundamentally a misreading because anyone who gets involved in it because they think it's going to work out for them, they're wrong. Fascism Mm -hmm. comes for everybody in the end. And I think uh, one of the things that's sort of troubling to me and pushed me out on the road was um, uh, the sort of language I would hear from liberal friends who would sort of say, oh, it's terrible what's happening to this group that they don't identify with or it's terrible what's happening to those folks. I feel so sorry for them. Um, it's coming for you as well. It's coming for the fascists themselves. And we know this from history and we can watch it happen in real time. I mean, look at Trump himself. Is there anybody he won't betray? Of course not. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the nature of this movement. You know that uh, one of the things that Barbara Walter her research confirms is that, and I thought this was really interesting, that civil wars around the world are not started by the disenfranchised, the poor, the immigrant groups. I mean, and this reinforces what she has said. They're started by once dominant groups who refuse to relinquish their power. My question for you is, as you traveled through Wisconsin, were you were you meeting people who did possess power, but also possess that sense of grievance that Trump reinforces and this perception that, that they were losing that power. I mean, that's, that's everybody. That's really the, I mean, the, the, the central figure in the book is this woman, Ashley Babbitt, who uh, listeners may recall was the woman who on uh, January 6th was climbing through a window in the Capitol. She's an insurrectionist uh, and was shot dead. And the officer who shot her was black. She was a white woman. And as soon as I saw that, I knew this was going to be, this is an old American story. It's the lynching story. It's the story of D.W. Griffith's birth of a nation. The idea of white womanhood killed by a, in their imagination, a black predator. You know, forget that it's an officer of the law, actually, in this case, protecting Congress. Um, uh, I knew they were going to make a story of that. And 
and so I sort of followed Ashley Babbitt's sort of martyr myth and development. And Ashley is in some ways a perfect emblem of this, per- of this because she is a person, white working class woman, um, who had sort of made good for herself, was sort of living the American dream and felt like it was slipping away. And for her, it was. Uh, she was in over her head, in debt. Uh, a number of things had gone wrong in her life. Um, the diagnosis is not always incorrect that um, uh, uh, things have gone wrong. I write about Youngstown, Ohio, and mm-hmm. uh, a group of men sort of slipping rightward, even though they know what Trumpism is, and they knew that he wasn't going to bring back the steel mills, but at least he said he would. At least he gave them a dream, right? They had lost out. Um, it's their prescription the heirs, that somehow this will restore them to greatness. Instead of doing that work, and it's why I frame the book with these sort of chapters of hope, uh, instead of doing the work of saying, let us imagine something better and build something better, um, if this thing that's broken and it's hurting, and a lot of these people are hurting, no question, um, uh, but um, uh, this is not going to make them better. This is sort of them sort of lingering in their wounds and passing their pain on to others. You alluded a few minutes ago to, I think you said the election of Barack Obama quickened this move that you're seeing in reporting the book. How so? I'm not sure if that, if, if, if I mean, there's, there's political scientists, and I should say, you know, I, uh, uh, with respect for Barbara Walter, my, my method is very different. I'm not a political scientist. I, I, I sort of go and I wander and, and, and just sort of be with people. Um, I'm not sure if I would say, though, my impression is that Obama's election quickened it. We know that it certainly, uh, that white supremacist and extreme right groups uh, started organizing. We know militias started growing. But the fact of the matter is this movement now is also drawing on some people who voted for Obama. And in fact, that functions for them as these are white folks uh, who, uh, for whom that functions in their mind as a kind of inoculation. Well, I could never be racist because I voted for Obama. Well, that's absurd, mm-hmm. of course, and, and grotesque. Um, but it's doing the same thing that, for instance, Trump has always done and has never been sufficiently reported on. Is he opened so many of his rallies throughout and, and uh, ongoing with a preacher, and usually a preacher of color, uh, a, a black or Latinx man. Um, and for a mostly, not all, but mostly white crowd, and that allows them to imagine that the hate that they're expressing is, is almost sort of conceptual rather than specific uh, to a race. Um, so I think maybe you could say it sort of quickened it in the sense of um, I mean, I don't like to say it quickened it because, you know, there's nothing that's like as if we're putting the blame on Obama. And in that case, it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the division sharpened and the fault line sharpened. And um, that's sort of why I call the book The Undertow. Trumpism. And by Trumpism, I don't mean just Trump. Trumpism is DeSantis. Trumpism is whoever, you know, fills the space now, much like the age of Reagan went on long after Reagan. Uh, I think um, Trumpism began well before Trump. Um, uh, This undertow has been pulling us in this direction uh, uh, for many years. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening today to a conversation with Jeff Charlotte. He's a professor at Dartmouth and a journalist. And as you've heard him describe, he wanders the country observing, um, participating in conversations 
with people. And he did that in pursuit of his new book titled The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. He's joining us from New Hampshire. By the way, before we we talk about some other parts of the country, you did spend quite a bit of time in Wisconsin. What do you see in your own backyard in New of New Hampshire? You know, it, 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 uh, I actually live in Vermont, but right on the border, so I'm always back and forth. Um, and uh, okay. a, a lot of some folks in Wisconsin sort of said, why are you picking on Wisconsin? And the answer is because <laughs> I was there. Yeah. And I could have written this uh-huh. year. Um, and I could have even written this in the bluest state in the Union, Vermont, um, where within, you know, five, ten miles of my home in any direction, I can find a Confederate flag, I can find a Trump flag, and I can even find the all-black flag. If you've seen an American flag, but it's just shades of black, not not with a blue stripe, just all black, that's the flag of no mercy, of no quarter. The one who flies it is one who generally believes that a civil war is coming and that the appropriate stance is that to take no prisoners, that anyone is on the other side is, is, is to be killed. It's a, it's a genocidal flag, and it's flying all over the country. It's flying near my home in Vermont. New Hampshire, meanwhile, uh, is, is trying to catch up with Wisconsin and the kind of restrictive laws it's, uh, it's, it's passing. Uh, I have a, I, I live in Vermont and we have one of the most unusual school districts in the country because it's in two states. So my kids go to school in both Vermont and New Hampshire and, um, hmm. they can't learn the same things between elementary and elementary school. Really? They can learn about, um, uh, the history of slavery. You cross the river into New Hampshire Teachers are on a much, much tighter leash. Some schools are taking down any, any rainbow, whether or not it's a pride rainbow or other kind of rainbow, um, because it can get you in trouble. Uh, 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 people are suing school districts trying to get lists of, of, of queer kids and trans kids. Lists. I mean, collecting lists. This is, I'm not going to say these people have murder in mind, but that is the first step and to how that's always happened is making lists of those whom you see as, as deviant. So I, I do want to emphasize to those who live in so-called blue areas, um, uh, I think this division is much more complex than most people realize. And I think those who think, gosh, it's terrible that down there in Alabama um, are mm-hmm. one, abandoning their fellow people, their fellow countrymen down in Alabama, um, and all those who want freedom and democracy and, and all the queer folks and trans folks and, and, and people of color, all the women and, and uh, uh, people who need reproductive rights who can't get access to it. That's there now. It's coming here, and it's already present, even in these blue states, more than I think most people realize. You know, I'm sure you saw this. A lot of people scoffed at Marjorie Taylor Greene's suggestion of a national divorce, and it has inspired a number of, you know, op-eds and jokes and that kind of thing. But she is speaking to a certain uh, community of Americans beyond her, her district in northern Georgia. She is speaking to a certain number of Americans who think that that would be the solution. I mean, when you really start to put it or take it apart, I guess it doesn't work because you can't have, you know, if you move to a red, if you're from a blue state and you move to a red state and you don't get to vote for five years because states are not monolithic. But I think she speaks 
to a number of people who think that's where we're headed and that's okay. What do you think? I, I think you're absolutely right. And the scoffing at Marjorie Taylor Greene, and of course she's an absurd character, although I think, again, that's folks not really paying attention to the history of fascism, which has always worked through a certain buffoonery, right? A certain kind of performance. Hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. you'll hear a political pundit refer to something as just theater. Um, yeah. Well, I love theater, so I never say just theater. Performance is the nature of our public lives, or as Joan Gideon famously says, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. I think uh, that's sometimes been misunderstood as this like wonderful, positive story thing. No, Joan Gideon is talking about all the stories, the myths that we make of our lives. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a fairly expert myth maker, and all we need to do is look at her advance from when she was elected and immediately marginalized and scoffed at to her very central role in the Republican Party now. And it does frustrate me, after all these years, the figures that we keep dismissing as jokes keep moving into the mainstream. And I I write about this in the book. You know, you can speak of uh, uh, a a kooky character like the QAnon shaman who had the horns on his head um, and dismiss him. On January 6th. Yes, on January 6th. Um, but then there's Marjorie Taylor Greene, or you can talk about, um, you know, uh, uh, some other sort of crackpot insurrectionist um, or uh, these, you know, uh, the guys who, who stand around with guns outside of drag shows. Um, or you can talk about uh, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, who open carried uh, into Congress, um, you, you know, and, and, and down the list, and we can, you can keep saying, well, that one's marginal, that one's marginal. Um, uh, we hear now that Nikki Haley is going to restore the party to uh, moderation. Uh, I saw a, a pundit speaking of this the day after. She says that 90% of kindergartners, American kindergartners, are under the control of critical race theory and are being taught to hate white people. This is pure fantasy. It's absolutely false, and it should tell us that it's time to stop scoffing at that which we consider just theater and pay attention to the performance and understand how it's working. How is this story working? Because unfortunately it is. Do you think, uh, let's just say Nikki Haley's argument about kindergartners would find fertile ground in some of the communities that you were in in Wisconsin, including Black River Falls, Wisconsin, which is about two hours uh, east of the Twin Cities, where we are. I mean, would an argument like that play there? Absolutely. I mean, an argument like that would play among some in, in, in my community. I mean, uh, in my very sort of progressive area, our school district is being sued by a family with anonymous backers uh, that's concerned about indoctrination, Right. That's everywhere, but I'm glad to bring up Black River Falls, which is a real sort of key place for me in the book. Um, as I traveled around Wisconsin, I carried with me uh, a book by, called Wisconsin Death Trip, published in 1973, same year as Roe uh, was passed. Um, and I was traveling in the aftermath of Roe's fall, and I brought with me Death Trip. It's a book by a friend and my mentor years ago as a, as a young person, uh, a book of photographs from the late 19th century uh, United States in this little town of Black River Falls, Wisconsin, accompanied by clippings from uh, the newspaper. And 
at the time this book came out, it sort of challenged, it was a major revisionist history, challenging this idea of the pastoral idea, idea of the past. That in fact, this was a time of great terror and darkness, madness, um, uh, uh, bankruptcy, insanity. Um, and yet, in that story, there's a kind of hope, right? To remind us that this has happened before. Um, uh, things falling apart is not a new moment. And so I went to Black River Falls because I wanted to see where it is now. And I drove into Black River Falls and I see a group of young women standing on the bridge over the Black River. And I, I, I can't say on the radio what their sign said, but this is right after the aftermath of Roe. And they were furious. They were furious about their rights slipping away. And I ended up spending time with them and some scarier characters in Black River Falls. Young people, high school, college, uh, um, also believe the Civil War is coming. And that was sort of sad to me, I mean, sort of terribly sad. They're ready to fight it. They say they're unafraid. Um, they say this is coming. They say they're taking our rights. They say the adults aren't going to save us. Um, and it's hard to argue with them as we look around the world. Uh, I do think we have let that generation down. And I do take heart by their courage. You know, Jeff, though, when when you talk to them about the Civil War and they say they think it's coming, what what do they actually imagine? Because, you know, if you talk to scholars, again, like Barbara Walter, her her vision of, of some, you know, approaching Civil War is not two armies on the other, other side of a river. It's much more complicated and much less defined than that. So what do these people imagine? I think all of them imagine. I think of another, uh, uh, another figure from the book, uh, Rob Brum, militia leader in Wisconsin, or, or uh, one of the militia churches in Omaha, Nebraska. There's one in, I visit in California. Um, they, yeah, they all, again, it's, they're, we, we have to pay attention to the theater, right? They're imagining, they're looking at movies like Red Dawn. Or as one tells me, the movie 300, where 300 brave Spartans fight off uh, endless armies of Persians, right? This is what their idea of civil war is. In the same way that Ashley Babbitt, when she invaded the Capitol, thought she was embodying the spirit of 1776. And when you go to rallies for her name, people speak of her as Crispus Attucks, who was not actually killed in 1776, the first man killed in the revolution. There should be noted a black Wampanoag man. Uh, not this uh, white hero, um, uh, but they they have an imaginary idea of a grandstand, and the reality, of course, is as Barbara Walters is right, um, and the slow civil war that I think we're already in is simmering violence, is is the brawls I saw, it's people arming up, it's the crimes that mostly don't get reported. We sometimes hear about a big. Uh, a murder of a family by a, a father deranged by QAnon. I included in a chapter called TikTok the story of a woman I call Evelyn, mm -hmm. who was also deluded by QAnon, had been a liberal, was deluded into it, into thinking that children were being taken, and started ramming her car into other people's cars. Thank God nobody was hurt. That didn't make national news. It barely made local news. And stories like that are happening all over the country. That's, a, that's what I think of as a, a kind of a slow, simmering civil war. Now, the one thing, I, the, the thing that I think is dangerous is a lot of liberals look at these militias and say, well, they've got a thing coming. Uh, 
you know, uh, when an F-16 comes around, and of course it's right, the moose is not going to march. The risk, and I, I think the bigger risk is the ways in which these people can act as sparks and catalysts that force government actors into action. There's room for escalation at that point. I want to talk about a, a a man that you encountered in Quincy, Wisconsin. I don't think you ever give us his name. He loves to fish, throws them all back because he says something like fish love life too. And I think you write he's he's very gentle until you start talking about the idea of the deep state. Do you remember what he tells you, Jeff? Yeah, yeah, that guy, that was a, a man I sought out, uh, uh, my, my best friends in Wisconsin, and with whom I was staying part of the time, uh, are radical left, queer trans couple, and the rural folks. And they said, you've got to stop talking to all these angry uh, uh, right-wing <laughs> rural folks. There's, there's progressives as well. And so I just, and I, when I met this guy, I thought, well, here's my man, right? And we're just having this lovely, beautiful conversation. And then... He turns to the deep state, and suddenly he has all kinds of conspiracy theories about uh, abortion being a way of getting rid of white babies, of moving in children of color. And the only solace we could get from him is that he didn't think he was not going to bring out his guns for civil war because he thought it was too late. He thought he was already under control of the deep state. Um, These are fictions. I mean, his beliefs are fictions. Um... But it's also important to remember that whenever we talk about civil war, we're talking about fictions and we're talking about mythology Um, and Mm -hmm. uh, the ways in which that starts to shape that individual's uh, uh, engagement. Any one of these individuals you could dismiss as a kook. I think the question is, as you start to move, and this is why I've been crisscrossing the country doing this for years, and to realize that this is pervasive. And that these are the people who you might know and you may not realize hold these views. Um, uh, that maybe you go to this man, he fixes fishing rods, and he's this wonderful guy you talk about fishing with. Um, and then you discover this strange terror. You write of him, um, soon he predicted, they will try to make us all speak one language, a one-world government tongue, an evil Esperanto that will rob us of that which is particular to our lives, our places, our pasts. It's coming, he said. No, he said, it's here. There will be no civil war. He will never bring out his guns, though he too was well-armed. Well-armed, he too had prepared his children because we have already lost all that remains is our accommodation. I you know the despair in what he tells you about that, right next to, you know, this wonderful life that he's living in this beautiful part of the country where he's fishing and he's got this appreciation for the, the environment around him. And then he lives with this other sense of despair. Yeah, and I think there's something, I mean, a lot of these folks, I... I I want to be careful with how I say this. Um, a lot of these folks, I can, there are ways in which I can relate to them, not in their political beliefs, not in their fascism, not in their hate, not at all. I'm, I, I'm not a, I'm a very much which side are you on person. I, I'm transparently and subjectively and with them as well, a person on the left. But um, 
the idea that, uh, uh, you know, as I speak to you, uh, I'm, I'm looking out the window and watching uh, this gorgeous red-tailed hawk sort of circle over uh, a field of cattails. And it's lovely. And it's a beautiful mm-hmm. day. And yet look at our conversation. And I think that's a coexistence that yeah. a lot of us are familiar with. And it's why I call, I got frustrated with the, the language of crisis, the crisis of democracy, climate crisis. I think this is right-wing language. I think it's, again, it's theatrical language, right? Um, it's the, uh, the arc, here comes the crisis, and now we're going to come to a resolution. Um, I call the introduction our condition. That's what we're in. In terms of climate, certainly, right? This is not a crisis that we're going to solve. This is something we're going to have to learn to live mm-hmm. with. In terms of the challenge to democracy, this is not something we solve by um, having one election, booting Trump out. This is a condition that we have built up. We've built up this plaque in our system, well, one might argue over 400 years, um, but especially in, in recent decades. Um, and I think that kind of coexistence to our loveliness is in our lives, the man making fishing rods as the sun sets and it's beautiful and yet he's filled with these dark ideas. Um, I think most of us can connect with that in some way. Uh, uh, We live our lives, we seek beauty, um, and yet we're aware of just how endangered it is right now. You're listening to a conversation this hour with Jeff Charlotte. His new book is titled The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, and I'm Carrie Miller. I want to talk about where faith and religion fits in here. Boy, I found this part of the book really, really interesting and a little alarming. But I'm going to start with um, a politician's evocation of faith. Um, and then we, then we can talk a bit about what you found in the churches. So I, I don't know if you've heard this ad before. Let's listen, and then we can talk about it. And on the eighth day... God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a protector. So God made a fighter. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, kiss his family goodbye, travel thousands of miles for no other reason than to serve the people, to save their jobs, their livelihoods, their liberty, their happiness. So God made a fighter. God said, I need someone to be strong, advocate truth in the midst of hysteria, someone who challenges conventional wisdom and isn't afraid to defend what he knows to be right and just. So God made a fighter. God said, I need somebody who will take the arrows, stand firm in the wake of unrelenting attacks, look a mother in the eyes and tell her that her child will be in school. She can keep her job, go to church, eat dinner with friends, and hold the hand of an aging parent taking their breath for the last time. So God made a fighter. God said, I need a family man, a man who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his daughter says, she wants to spend her life doing what dad does. So God made a fighter. Jeff, 
what our <laughs> listeners can't see yes. I feel like this is are the images. Jeopardy. I know the answer. <laughs> Who is Ron DeSantis? I know you know. That's right. That's right. Our listeners um, can't see the images, but it's a lot of pastoral America and then images of Ron DeSantis in various, uh, in front of various crowds, et cetera. Had you heard that ad before or seen I, it? Yeah, yeah, I, ha- I have seen it. And um, What do you make of it? Um, on the one hand, it's a sort of a startling uh, further escalation in, in the religiosity of American politics. On the other hand, I mean, even in the voice, you know, the sort of uh, 1950s kind of preacher, this indication of of whiteness, I should say, of, you know, uh, a, a white preacher from a white America. Um, I, I come to the writing about religion. I've been writing about religion sort of my, my, my whole life. These are sort of these, these twin interests of, of, of right-wing movements and religious movements. And the common ground is actually I'm, I'm fascinated by um, belief systems that I don't necessarily share. Um, uh, and, uh, I've written a lot about the history of conservative religion in America, um, such that uh, I think um, what Ron DeSantis is doing, you can go back and you can find, you can find that in 1935. You can find that in 1925. Mm -hmm. You can find it every single decade. uh, If you look around at the same time, you can also find every single decade, um, every single, every five years, you can find much of uh, our colleagues in the mainstream press, uh, declaring in one way or another that religious conservatism or religious fundamentalism or Christian nationalism, however you want to name it, um, is a spent force in American life, that it's dead, that it's old. And, <laughs> Interesting. and yet it never is. And not only is it never gone, it's never really old. It is uh, constantly making itself anew. It is a fun, it's not an old-time religion. It is an extremely modern and even postmodern religion, uh, absolutely adaptability. Adaptable to the needs of power where it finds itself. I mean, the other thing that I, there's so much to take apart there. We're not going to spend the rest of our time together doing that. But the other thing that I hear is that kind of authoritarian, patriarchal look back to an America that, I don't know, really never was and look forward into an America that really isn't going to be. Who does this appeal to? I think, I think uh, again, that's the, as you said, the authoritarian, patriarchal, it's the promise of whiteness and it's the promise of misogyny. Um, it's an imaginary America that never existed, um, uh, but we've always, uh, as Americans, had a soft spot for these kinds of mythological past, mourning in America, the invocation of, uh, of the Western, not the actual West, but a Western movie made in Hollywood. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and the idea that if you are in that fictional time, you can dream it anytime you want. You can enter into this sort of dream time of, of mythical America. Um, I think what's important to consider is that for a lot of people, um, a lot of white folks, a lot of white men, but not just men, here they are, they are in one way or another, trying to adapt to the modern world, trying to, um, trying to recognize that some things have changed, um, trying to not be as racist as they once were. If we think of religious right movements like the Promise Keepers, which were based on this idea of racial reconciliation, 
try and not be as misogynist as they once were. What fascism offers them, what Trump and his kind of burlesque way and DeSantis and his kind of pious way offers them, you know, stop resisting. You know you've got that racism in you. You know you've got that misogyny in you. Just just lean back. Go with the flow. Let, let, the, let the undertow take you out. And they experience it as a great relief. And that relief precludes them from thinking practically about what was history and what is the future. What is the world that we can make? I mean, no better illustration of that than, you know, the guys who soup up their trucks so that they belch black clouds of noxious <laughs> smoke, right? Because it's not just mm. that they don't believe in climate change. They so don't believe in climate change. They have to tell. It reminds me of an old story. A story. I, I, I grew up with Yiddish literature, and there used to be something called the Yiddish, this is the language of Eastern European Jews, Yiddish anarchist ball. And the Yiddish anarchists absolutely didn't believe in God. No God. So on Yom Kippur, the day you're not supposed to eat, uh, they would have the most unkosher of meals. They would have a pig roast. And they would shake their fists at the sky and say, see, God, see how much we don't believe in you. <laughs> there's a little bit of that. <laughs> and that's so charming to me, but there's a little bit of that happening now with the defiance of, like, see how much I don't believe in climate change. See how much I don't believe in women's rights. See how much I don't believe in the humanity of others. I'm just going to fall backwards into this indulgence, this, this warm embrace, and whether it's the burlesque brace of Trump or, or, again, the pious brace of DeSantis, I think it amounts to the same thing. Yeah, it's like defiance for the sake of defiance. I, I, I was curious about whether you, um, in preparation for your travels, you, you've read Kristen Cobes Dumez's book, Jesus and John Wayne. Have you had a yeah. chance to read that? Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a great admirer of her. Actually, she, uh, in fact, uh, she is one of my my blurbers. One of the people who very kindly read the, this oh, book as well. Oh, okay, and, and, good. And gave it uh, the blurb. Yeah, she's she's, uh, I think, a very deep thinker and coming from uh, a place within Christianity and thinking about the ways in which patriarchy and misogyny has played this sort of central role um, uh, in the church for so wrong, and especially in white evangelicalism. And, and, and I, I, have to, I hasten to say, as always, you, you do have to say this, not all evangelicals. Of course not all evangelicals. There's so many brave people right. doing that work to move their faith forward. And I do believe forward, because I, you know the language that always bugs me? What are we, how are we going to preserve democracy? Preserve democracy, like in a jam jar? Mm -hmm. what, what do you mean? We haven't had democracy yet. Um, I'd like to get us back on the path of maybe moving toward it, this dream yet unrealized, right? Um, but I think part of that has to do with the work uh, that Kristen really does of, of calling our attention uh, to not just the obvious sexism of a lot of fundamentalism, but the subtle ways it works into our lives and even into our secular lives. Right. Hey, what do you make of the Pew Research came out with a poll at the end of last year that found that 45 percent of Americans believe that this country ought to be a, quote, Christian country. I know if you if you I, I think if you asked many of those respondents, if they were aware that that's the antithesis of the principles that the country was founded on, they would 
understand that? What what are they reacting to? I don't know that, that I don't know that they would understand that that's the uh, antithesis of really? that. Uh, yeah, I, I wrote in an earlier book actually. Um, uh, I did a, a, a big survey of all the textbooks being used in Christian academies and Christian homeschoolers, and oftentimes public schools that are just using evangelical textbooks. And they tell a very different stories. Um, it's also a story told by a man named David Barton, um, who is sort of a, 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 a pastoral counselor to any number of congressmen, and he is their history teacher. And uh, there is a very full narrative. You can see it at the National Prayer Breakfast, which I've written every year, um, which Paul's Congress attends. It seems to be an official event. And on the, on the uh, program, various quotes from the founders. Some of them aren't real. Some of them are made up. Um, but they tell a story of a Christian nation. That's always been with us. I, I actually am not sure if that, 40, that 45% number, I don't know how really new that is. Uh, that might even be lower mm. than at some wow. point in the past. Really? Oh, wow. Uh, what I'm more concerned about past... is the people who think that we don't need to be a democracy. You know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of, I, I know good progressive folks uh, um, who think it's a Christian nation, and but yet they have progressive ideas. Huh. Um, uh, you go into, you can go into um, some black churches and you'll find those ideas side by side with the most, beautiful, progressive kind of liberationist ideas. Um, the -hmm. question is to me, you're welcome into the public square. You can bring your Bible into the public square if you want. You, you just can't govern according to it. Um, and that's where we get into this question of democracy and the growing number of people. And what's fascinating to me is the number of people who, instead of saying our side is democracy versus your side, they're saying, you know what, we don't really, what do we need a democracy for anyways? Yeah. Yeah. We we have to talk about your chapter on Pastor Rich and his Rendezvous Church, otherwise known as the Vu Church, really enlightening. And he's part of what you call hipster Christendom. So so how do you define that? I mean, think of the most obnoxious hipster that you know with the most <laughs> impeccable hair and the most fabulous sneakers. <laughs> and just makes you feel like the worst moment at your worst middle school dance. And that's, that's Voo Church, and that was my experience. I was definitely, um, I was definitely the dork at this church. And these, they, I mean, they're really beautiful people. Pastor Rich um, used to have a TV show called Rich in Faith. It was a reality show of, there he is in Miami. He's the sort of heir to a megachurch fortune, and he's got this beautiful church, and he looks like Leonardo DiCaprio, and he loves telling you that, and just preaching on it, and he really does, he's a good-looking guy, um, and everyone who goes there is fantastic, he's the guy, he's famous, he married Kanye West and Kim Kardashian, he performed at wedding, he is Justin Bieber's pastor, and um, I wanted to include that chapter in the book, because I'm thinking about the undertow, and I'm thinking how we got to Trump. Um, and this is not an explicitly political church, although it's an implicitly right-wing church. Um, mm-hmm. But they don't talk about politics. Um, there's all kinds of currents. What makes a fascist moment is not a singular movement. It's a convergence of tributaries. And so the prosperity gospel, an idea of religion, um, a religion that wants you to be rich. Now, you take the prosperity gospel, which has been around a long time, and then you have rich people who believe that God wants them to be richer. Um, that's uh-huh. Boo Church. Um, and 
have their churches are not in you know where people their churches are in Minneapolis and Manhattan and Miami um, and appealing to young people and uh, slowly easing them rightward into acceptance of the underlying authoritarian ideas uh, preached in those churches. But yeah, I spent a lot of time there in Miami, and I have to say I've been reporting in so many churches for so many years. I had never been to such a soulless place. But even there, Mm. throughout the book, what I wanted to do is I wanted to find threads of loveliness or beauty, even in these sort of dangerous and dark places. And I met a young man who attended that church, uh, uh, Brandon, and he was kind of a holy fool. And he believed in everything that the church believed in. But he, when you asked him, he spoke of the city of God. And you imagine, he said, what's your city of God, Brandon? The first thing he didn't say is, you know, we're going to get rid of abortion. He said, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to cancel all debt. Um, and the next thing we're going to do is we're going to make sure everybody has a job. And everyone's going to care for one another. And we won't judge each other by how much you have. And it was quite lovely. It was beautiful. Um, uh, I don't think it was sad because when the church found that I was talking to him, they rushed in and interrupted because that gorgeous vision (laughs) was not the message they wanted to put out there. I saw they seemed very nervous by your roaming. You say um, about these churches, most leave untouched fundamentalism's core convictions, opposition to abortion and sex outside marriage. Instead, they rebrand the presentation. So, I mean, the shiny facade still holds a lot of that fundamentalist principle. It's just much more acceptable because of the shiny facade and this idea that everybody who joins and gets right with God gets rich. Is that it? That, that's absolutely it. And that goes back to the formation of the National Association of Evangelicals and the, the use of the term evangelical in and, and, and early mid-century America, which was very explicitly a rebranding of fundamentalism. And fundamentalism itself mm. had been, you know, a new marketing ploy not that many years before, and that became associated with uh, rigidity and ruralness and loss. They said, let's, let's find this much more appealing name, evangelical. And churches like Boo are dropping the evangelical. And, and I said, Boo... Uh, I just passed a church a little while ago in another city called Box. They always have one word, you know, boo, box, mm-hmm. air. Um, you know, it's some, it, sort of right, and it's very recognizable as uh, the language of, of marketing and of consumerism, um, of making your submission easy. And this is something that fascism wants to do, is it wants to make your submit. And I, I'm using the word fascism advisedly here. I, I didn't even used to think that it was possible in America. I'm, I'm not one who calls every left thing fascist. I wouldn't even call that church fascist. But making your submission to the, it's authoritarianism easy. Democracy requires mm-hmm. us to engage. Democracy is not something you have. It's something you do. Fascism, let it slide over you. You know, just lean back. Go with the flow. Um, and uh, so I was interested in these these movements that might not seem directly related um, right. and how I think they were actually flowing into what became Trumpism. I wanted to ask you a, a question about the way the media covers f- uh, faith and conservatism, because 
I think I remember reading an interview with you back in during the campaign of 2016, and you were talking about how poorly you think mainstream media covers these these issues and that intersection. And I think I remember you saying that the media is too respectful, that there isn't enough true investigatory skepticism, I guess, brought to this. Do I do I remember that right? It, yeah, very close. I would. I do think it is too respectful, and I do think, yeah, we need more investigatory skepticism, but we also need to take people at their word more. So it's kind of it goes both ways. Oh, and I think of this, okay. and, and uh, here's a little example from media history. Years ago, maybe 20 years ago, uh, New York Times uh, did a big feature on an Assemblies of God uh, megachurch. And I'm reading this, and I'm kind of stunned uh, I'm familiar with the church, I know how conservative it is, to not see really any mention or discussion of a concept called spiritual war, which is absolutely central to their practice, um, this concept mm-hmm. of spiritual war, which can be understood maybe somewhat like jihad, which is also jihad is not blowing up buildings. Jihad is internal spiritual struggle, right? That's spiritual war in theory. Um, and it turned out that uh, as in an interview with one of the editors or something, um, that they had not wanted to use that term because they didn't want to make, basically they didn't want to make the church sound crazy. But mm-hmm. those are the church's own terms, right? And I think so often mm-hmm. the press kind of shapes religion into, in, in their fear of being offensive, they shy away from um, the otherness of many people's religious beliefs. Um, and I think that's, act- that's actually um, a way of being disrespectful. So I say less respectful, but also more respectful. Someone talks about spiritual war, I'm going to talk to them about spiritual war. If I go to a militia church and they mm-hmm. tell me about their militia, I'm going to pay attention. If I go to Glad Tidings in Yuba City, California, which was a church in the news for the way in which it uh, resisted COVID uh, protocols and Listeners may have seen a clip that went viral of them presenting uh, General Michael Flynn with a customized AR-15 that he joked about hunting people in Washington with. Um, You go to that church, and they have some unusual beliefs. For instance, they believe, this is a big church, they believe that Hillary Clinton has already been executed, and that what we see is a trick of green screens. They believe believe in the whole QAnon sort of story, right? If I'm going to write about them, and as the local press did, I've got to write about those beliefs. That's not disrespectful, actually. That's respectful to take those beliefs seriously. And I think, you know, in some ways, like the blunter uh, uh, way of, uh, uh, of talking about this book is how to write stories about fascism, which I've been trying to figure out how to do for years. And I think the ways we have to tell stories about extremists and extreme right, they haven't been working. And we know that because here we are coming up in 2024, making the same mistakes with Trump that we made in 2016. Um, making the same dismissive maneuvers. Um, I think one of the ways that we need to do that is to approach it. Now, this is a word that alarms people with empathy. And it alarms people because they mistake it for sympathy. No sympathy for the devil, but a lot of empathy for the devil. And empathy for the devil, because if you, if here's a church that's got a lot of guns and they're arming up, I need to know what they're thinking. And I need to know how they're thinking it. I need... Uh, as as a Jew in America with a queer child, I need to know where where the guns are aimed, and that means understanding how they think. Um, 
that requires empathy, not sympathy, but it does mean I have to imagine what does the world look like to them? How does their system make sense to them? Jeff Charlotte's new book is titled The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Jeff, thank you. Thanks so much, Carrie. 